Welcome to the Thriving Farmer Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Kilpatrick. Our mission is to inspire, educate, and celebrate sustainable farming. We believe that you can build a profitable, sustainable farm that gives you true farm freedom. Join us as we talk to farmers, innovators, educators, and entrepreneurs to glean their top takeaways in business and life. This episode is sponsored by Rimmel Greenhouse Systems, makers of quality greenhouse structures. Whether you're just getting started or buying your 10th tunnel, Rimmel has a structure to fit your needs. I've purchased and grown in Rimmel houses and would recommend them to everyone. Hey, Thriving Farmers, Michael Kilpatrick here with yet another episode of the Thriving Farmer podcast. And my guests today are Michael and Lauren Marchand, who are the co-owners of Lapa'au Farm, a two-acre biointensive farm located in Maui, Hawaii, utilizing organic and regenerative practices. Lauren and Michael moved to Maui in 2015 after graduating from Chapman University. Since 2017, the mission of Lapa'au Farm has been to create a biointensive and regenerative approach with the goal of creating a closed loop system for increased sustainability. Michael began experimenting with growing oyster mushrooms early on in the business and quickly discovered that expanding this area of production was something worth investing in. Lapa'au Farm now produces around 500 pounds of oyster mushrooms per week, in addition to a variety of other seasonal vegetables, including root crops, salad greens, and brassicas. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. So, I mean, obviously, uh, question out of the gate is substrate. What are you guys using for substrate on your mushrooms? Because you're producing so many and you are in Hawaii. Yeah. So we currently use a straw. It's based out of oat straw, barley straw, or wheat straw. And we get that from our Dell's farm supply down in in the Valley area in Kahului. And we've tried with sawdust. We've tried with wood chips. um, We've tried with local sugarcane bagasse, and we found Mm -hmm. much better results with straw. The oysters seem to just be a straw loving species. We're able to cold water pasteurize so we don't have to do intensive heat pasteurization or sterilization Mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. we would need to do for sawdust. And um, we've just created a pretty efficient system with a passive approach in our greenhouse where we only regulate humidity with a fogging system. And Uh the summertime, we get a little bit lower yields because the temperatures don't drop as much to Mm -hmm. kick those mushrooms into fruiting. But um, the wintertime and spring and fall, usually we get those colder nights, which allows them to pin and have a much heavier production. So it's worked really well for us. We don't regulate any temperature and um, it's really just making sure that everything is smooth with no fungal gnats. Cause that's mm-hmm. probably the mm-hmm. biggest factor that, that we have to control. Um, and the fungal gnats will breed and create contamination. So as long as mm-hmm. we can h- handle that, then everything's pretty smooth. So for fungal gnats, do you do sticky traps? Do you do vinegar? We do sticky traps and um, we've been now actually wrapping our bays of shelving units with Agribon right when we uh-huh. put all of our bags in so they can't get in anymore. And this has worked great. We really don't have any more issues anymore. And it's pretty much stopped any contamination and any type of fungal gnats that it can get in. Oh, very cool. And then the straw, is that being grown on the island? Nope. Nope. And that's where our next approach is this year. We're trialing upland rice. And so Mm -hmm. our goal is to start growing a few varieties of rice. We're trialing about 12 genetics this year. And as long as it works out well, um, our goal is 
to potentially get up to 50 acres of rice, um, not only to grow for the grain, but then that would give us enough straw to be able to use for our yearly production. And very um, cool. Yeah. All right. So let's back up because obviously sometimes I get off track here. Tell us a little bit about the the farm, the overarching aspect of how many acres you're on and kind of like the, the production cycles. Yeah, so we're on, it's a 22 acre property, but we're only farming a little under two acres. Okay. And so our goal from the beginning was to do a really biodiverse, biointensive style production, obviously organic. And we just really focus on doing crops that have a pretty nice high turnover rate. So quick yields and just kind of going with the seasonal shifts and figuring out which crops do well, according to the seasons that we're in. And we're lucky in Hawaii, we have obviously a much longer growing season than most farms on the mainland. So we have that on our side for sure. And yeah, our mission has always been to do a lot of soil building. So we put a lot of um, when we're talking about the oyster mushroom production, all of the substrate from the straw that we use that we grow at the end of the life cycle of those um, oyster mushroom production, we put that back into the soil as well as organic compost, organic fertilizer. And so we've just put a lot of emphasis in building the soil health and that's really worked out for us. Um, in addition to kind of figuring out what times of the year to take out certain crops, doing cover crops, things like that have been really beneficial for us. Yeah, we, uh, it, it, it is seasonal in a way because we get heavy rains during most of the winter time. I mean, mm. uh, usually end of January through March, we'll get 30, 35 inches of rain. Wow. And so we have to grow particular crops that will handle that. Um, we'll take out all brassicas for the springtime because that's when usually all the bugs come out and mm -hmm. <clears throat> we just don't want to breed them. So we rotate and cycle and it's not all short day crops. We'll do a lot of onions and potatoes, um, mm -hmm. but definitely a lot of cauliflower because that's where our market is right now. But the onions and potatoes store well for the CSA and we can continue to rotate our quicker crops that have to be sold on a weekly basis, like our baby greens and baby arugula and things like that. Yeah. Because you guys don't freeze at all there, correct? Nope. No, no. The coldest we get is high forties really. So then your pest pressure must be pretty intense. Um, uh, well, less, it, it can yeah. get, go ahead. I would say less than Kula, which is the drier side, because we're up at 3,300 feet in Olinda and we're a little bit more isolated away from all the other conventional farmers. So uh, there's okay. definitely more pest pressure down there. And since we do get colder, um, we have a little bit less pest pressure. Yeah. Okay. Very interesting. All right. So talk us through the, the property you're on. Um, it says 22 acres. Talk about the topography. What type of soil do you have? Uh, it's pretty heavy clay. It's very red. Okay. Uh, if you look at the Instagram, you can see the soil is just like a nice um, light brown, but but more so red. And uh, we have probably about eight eight or so acres of pasture. Mm -hmm. We used to run cattle and sheep, and that just became too intensive. Um, we yeah. ran about three years of that, and we had electric fencing. And so our bull was a big boy. And uh, whenever he wanted new grass, he would choose to walk through those 10,000 volts instead of um, yeah. letting the pastures rest. So we got rid of them after a few years um, because they didn't really make us any money either. They were helping uh, regenerate the land, but it was just kind of hectic when you'd wake up in the morning and you'd look to see where the animals are and they're not where they're supposed to be. And you yeah. Go get them. 
Yeah. Um, so the soil's rich. Uh, it's new soil, so it's definitely lower in calcium and magnesium. Um, it doesn't have that that same vitality and micronutrients that you might find um, in the plains, like where you're at. Mm -hmm. But um, the sunshine's great, and we do have a lot of micro bacteria in the air, um, and and just really life seems to. Uh, regenerate really quickly here because it's so warm so when you put a lot of compost in the soil the compost seems hungry i'm sorry the soil seems hungry for compost so it's constantly mm -hmm. just eating it up and um, all those microbes and all the bacteria and fungi in the soil seems to need to have a constant um, amount of food for it to thrive yeah now you're doing a wide range of crops too so you're not just doing like you know because i'm seeing here on your instagram everything from winter squash the corn to you know the, the, the cauliflowers and all that um mm -hmm. and i also seen a picture of you're doing uh you have gutters on your greenhouse is that just to try to capture all that crazy rain yeah so that's actually a funny side note so we um actually got a contract with the nrcs to do the high tunnels and that was okay. part of the contract was having the gutters in place. Um, so we haven't figured out like the long-term goal is eventually to maybe put in a pond and utilize all that water catchment from the greenhouse gutters going into a feed a pond, which would then feed the farm. Mm -hmm. um, but right now it's, it's not like they're really being used for much. No. Yeah. It's, it's a weird contract with the NRCS. Like when they support the building of greenhouse, they need something to allow the yes. water to run off. But in a way, putting splash guards on the sides and pushing all that water to one side or, or two sides is more erosion, I think, than if it just falls down the greenhouse. But for some mm -hmm. odd reason, that's what they wanted. So because they have a share reimbursement program, um, that's why we, we went with that, because the farmer's friend greenhouses specifically too, their square foot cost is even lower than what the NRCS gives you back. So yeah. we were able to actually make money on being able to put up those greenhouses. So that's a really good program for anyone who wants to uh, yeah. put up greenhouses and save money or, or make some money. Yeah, we actually did not get funded for our greenhouse this year. Well, it's the second year we haven't gotten funded for greenhouses, but we did get funded for an energy audit. And, uh, because again, I've had, I've had multiple friends go through the NRCS program and I've heard all the different little bits and places you can go. And if you know what you're doing, well, we got funded for, I think I'm like $2,500 and I guess the energy audits like $4,500. Um, so we chose not to go through with it, but, um, cause I know people that have gotten, let's say like entire pig barns. Um, because the whole thing was, okay, if your pigs are undercover, they're not going to be leaching nutrients into the soil or, you know, increase the energy efficiency of all your walk-in coolers and go from like a, a 12 sear to a 20 sear. So that's the goal we were headed with it. But um, you're right. The NRCS, they have these little, someone made a rule someplace and uh, you can either benefit yeah. from it or it's going to mess you up. Yeah. And that's how it is for fencing for us. Uh, they'll share reimbursement. Mm -hmm. um, with deer fencing. Cause we have like a hundred thousand deer here that are oh, demolishing yeah. farms, demolishing pasture land to all the uh, ranchers that run cattle, but the deer fencing costs, like, let's say it's 10 acres and it's 60 grand. Mm -hmm. Um, they only reimburse like 20 grand for it. So most people don't want to spend that much money. Yeah. Put it up. 
Yeah, exactly. And I think too, they have pretty specific um, rules. So you have to do a certain type of, of fencing or a certain type of yeah. thing. So that's where it could also get like, sometimes you can figure out like, well, I could do it much cheaper, but to apply for NRCS, we actually got funded with our, back when we lived in New York, our first tunnel was the first year the whole NRCS program ran for tunnels. Oh, wow. At that point, they wouldn't let you put electricity to your houses. And so we had, we put up a, I think we put up a, a hay grove system because they were the cheapest per square foot without electricity. Um, anyway, but it's just, again, it's just interesting how they, they change everything and how everything's yeah. set up. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So talk us through a little bit of your tunnel production. What kinds of things do you do under tunnels? Yes. Yeah, so we mainly got those tunnels to really assist in being able to grow vertically and to do our tomatoes and cucumbers indoors. But at the same time in the winter time, when we have all that heavy rain and pest mm -hmm. pressure to be able to keep our baby greens and baby salad mixes going, um, cause they don't handle the rain very well. And the pest pressure for the brassicas really increases. Uh, we have a specific bug called the bagrata bug mm. and it takes out all brassicas, but especially the tender Asian ones. So uh, Hakurai turnips, radishes, mm -hmm. mustards, arugula, and uh, it just wipes them out when they're at their cotyledon leaf stage. Mm. So the vertical farming aspect of those farmer's friend tunnels has been tremendous. Um, we do a lot of the Japanese style cucumbers, it's an unagi variety and mm -hmm. uh, a little bit of the piccolino variety. And each one of those tunnels can produce a tremendous amount for us each week. And we're looking at like 600 pounds per week um, mm -hmm. per tunnel and for a, an extended period of time as well. And the tomato production too is extremely important for us to have that indoor. We do have one specific variety called damsel that we can go outside from Johnny's and we trialed about 15 different varieties of tomatoes last year, and we figured out which ones work really well for us indoor. That's indeterminate that we can lower and lean on mm -hmm. roller hooks and throw determinates on the sides because it's a little bit too short to do lower and leans. And then the outdoors, we just allow them to grow up pretty tall and we just do a basket weaving um, with mm -hmm. posts. And the indoor tomatoes really get heavy blight if they were growing outdoors because we consistently get this cloud line of moisture that pushes up right against our farm. And sometimes we won't really have dry weather for like months. It'll just be a constant mist. And we had maybe like six to eight varieties last year when we had heavy rains that within a week just melted. And we had mm. some that just stood tall in the field. So it was important for us to really run a lot of trials over the last couple of years to figure out what genetics are going to handle the climate that we're in. And uh, those greenhouses have helped substantially in being able to add a different kind of production to our farm because we didn't do cucumbers and tomatoes before. We were really focused on roots and baby greens and our mushrooms and brassicas. Mm -hmm. Now, I noticed you do have some of your houses screened. Talk a little bit about that. Mm. Yeah, the, the screening is extremely important because in Hawaii, we have a few bugs. One is called a pickle worm. So yep. uh, it gets stung constantly, like any kind of squashes that aren't a solid hard squash. So any summer squash, but especially the cucumbers. And sometimes you can get lucky and maybe get a crop in for a little bit, but they eventually find it because of that sweetness. And um, you can do fly traps and things like that, but we just wanted to do our best to create the most efficiency. So we purchased some insect netting from Big Island and put up 
around our entire greenhouse and on the front and back. So that way we don't have any issues with bugs coming in um, and we don't have any issues with loss of crops. And it's been great because airflow can still come in. We have fans in there um, with electricity. And so we keep movement of airflow, but we don't allow any of the bugs to come in. Mm -hmm. And so that's attached with the, on the double channel at the top. And then on the bottom, is that attached to a wiggle wire channel or just like into the ground? Uh, we just cover it with soil in the ground. Okay. So Sorry, uh, yeah. we uh, we ordered extra wiggle wire channels because Farmer's Friend, it's just the ropes, as you probably know. And yeah. Yeah. we just grabbed some more wiggle wire channels to run on the sides. So it would give us the ability to put up that screen. Yeah. Yeah. We just screened a house for cucumber beetles. And I'm not 100% happy with how it came out. So I'm trying, I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to probably redo it this fall or next year. But um, so yeah, I'm just looking mm -hmm. at other ways of doing it. Yeah, this and, was efficient and great and it works super yeah, well. Yeah, and you guys are doing like all sorts of crops. Like you got artichokes, you're doing um, parsnips. Is that something you're normally just trying to grow the widest variety possible or do you just try different things depending on the year? Yeah, so early on, I like to tell the story. The first year that we came to this property, um, we had had some success prior on a property nearby with doing a bunch of onions and potatoes. So when we first got to this property, um, we did an entire field block of Maui sweet onions. And we thought this was going to be the best thing ever, going to have great harvest. And mm -hmm. we got hit with some interesting weather, just a variety of reasons that it didn't um, yield very well. And we lost probably 40 to 50%, maybe more, <laughs> more than that. More yeah. Than that. yeah. yeah of the crop. So early on, that was like our big teaching moment of we're not going to do giant field blocks of one particular thing. We're just going to do a huge diversity. Um, and the artichokes was a good trial for the first year, but when it comes to square feet and how much it takes up with how much return there is on its investment, it wasn't worth it to us. Mm -hmm. So we've taken that out. Parsnips are great to do once or twice through the year, just for SCSA members and a little bit for some of the restaurant clients. But um, we really focus on the consistency of carrots, beets, turnips, uh, baby arugula, our salad mixes, um, cauliflower, broccolini, and tomatoes and cucumbers. Um, I would say those are our staples. And then we'll throw in beans and um, different kinds of radishes, um, broccoli a few times mm -hmm. a year. Um, what eggplant. Else? Yeah, eggplant. Just adding in little things that will push out for three or four months. So that way we can keep our CSA diversified as much as we can, uh, herbs and things like that. The corn was just a fun thing this year. We trialed a Kentucky butcher grinding corn a mm -hmm. couple of years ago. And it worked really good, um, but it's mainly for grinding and we were eating it raw um, and it's, it's all right, but it, it's definitely a starchier corn. So we wanted to trial a sweet corn this year and that's mainly for our CSA. So mm -hmm. we just like to run trials each year. Like we're doing some soybeans and some dry beans and the upland rice. So we dedicate a small percentage every year to making sure that we can continue to try new crops and see if something works. Because even though we don't want to grow a lot of one thing, um, I do want rice or dry beans to, to be a big expansion of the farm, whether it's just on our property or on a different property, because I want to add in more of a um, well-balanced protein-based diet so that way we're not just growing vegetables and mushrooms, but we can actually feed people um, something that's like a sustained diet. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, absolutely. And you also do some flowers. 
Mm. Yeah. yeah. Last summer was the first year that I was experimenting with the flowers and um, it went really well. It was really fun to trial out different things and just reading a bunch of blogs and following other flower farmers has been really helpful. And then, yeah, going off of what went well last year, I just planted out a bunch for this summer and now we're wholesaling to some florists. And then we do direct to customer with our CSA occasionally. And then um, also to some grocery stores and other restaurants. It's mm-hmm. been awesome not only to see Lauren's passion and like spark light up because she definitely loves the flowers more than the Mm -hmm. vegetables but it's a really nice aspect to bring to the farm where you get to walk around and there's beautiful flowers and um it's it's brings a lot of joy to everybody who comes on yeah so you're doing tulips now is that something to buy pre-chilled the bulbs and then just plant plant those uh, we actually bought them regularly and then we vernalized them ourselves. Um, okay. But we had a very odd hot spring. We usually get a lot of rain in the early spring and we didn't. So they were successful in, in some form, but we probably wouldn't do them again because the margins were so small. And yeah, um, yeah it's just like a, a one cut thing. You know, you, you don't get a lot of stems like you would from amaranthus or from zinnias and things like that. Uh, yeah. So. It just wasn't worth it for us. Yeah, it was a fun experiment, but like Michael said, I don't think we'll do it again. If we'll do it again, it'll be just small kind for ourselves or friends. But um, yeah, I found the most success with things like Snapdragons. Snapdragons went for months and months and months here in our climate, and they're just so prolific. And same with Zinnias, Celosia, the Dahlias, the cut and come again style is really where it's worth it for us in terms Mm -hmm. of the bed space to put in the flowers. Yeah, this year we're doing a cut flower section. We did last year we did actually bouquets, and this year we're like, we don't have time for that. We're just going to do the you pick. So we've got a couple, a bunch of stuff nice. in there, and we'll see what happens. Um, yeah. We bought dahlias in as cuttings, like rooted cuttings instead of tubers. Hmm. So far, it's working out really, really well. Um, I always hyperventilate when I have to divide t- uh, tubers. <laughs> Yeah, it's definitely a task. <laughs> so, um, you know, we've, we've talked about, you know, getting into the tuber game. And my only thing was like, I'm not going to sit there and divide out tubers. I think I would just sell them as like clumps. Okay. You get one clump and it's more expensive, but mm-hmm. I just, exactly. I just don't, yeah, that's, that's my style of, of selling tubers. Um, so talk us through a little bit about like the seasons, like your CSA, is that go year round? Yeah. So we launched the CSA right in the spring of 2020, when the whole island got shut down, all the state Mm -hmm. of Hawaii, that's when everything was shutting down. And so quickly we're pivoting to that. And within a week we sold out with the CSA. We we only do about a 50, 60 person total CSA per month. So it's not huge and it's not a giant portion of our sales, but it's still a really nice little chunk. And we love um, doing the direct to consumer, supporting the community. People love it. So kind of fuels us to have that more um, personal experience. So in terms of the seasons, yeah, it is year round and it kind of just goes with whatever we're planting out. Yeah, um, we we ended up switching the CSA from, it was just essentially a three month commitment and people would get their credit cards charged every other week. Um, so instead of doing a $25 box to everyone every week, we do a $45 box to everyone every two weeks. Mm. And that way, 
um, we can do two different groups. So one is on our North shore and one is on our South shore. And it just makes it easier for us to manage on a weekly basis. But we switched it over to a six month commitment, which is kind of standard for the East coast where it's like, Hey, you're going to pay up front for this mm -hmm. whole season. Mm -hmm. And that way we're not taking a 3% credit card charge. Um, and we don't have people saying, Hey, I'm going on vacation. Can you skip me? And then can I get my money back? And it's, it was so much communication for Lauren on emails mm -hmm. that, um, we tried to diminish the administration jobs and just have people pay up front and it's worked great and people are very satisfied and happy with it too. Yeah. We were using a program to manage hopefully the pausing and all that stuff and ours is customizable, but we're not hundred percent happy with the software because it's not mm. super. And actually today I found out something that it's making a bug in the system, which is making it even more challenging for folks. But I get that aspect of the communication is just back and forth and back and forth. Now every two weeks. So, I mean, like are your greens and stuff, you give them like a 10 or 12 day shelf life. So by the time the next box comes, they're just running out. Is that how that works? Exactly. Yeah. Our baby yeah. greens usually last around 12 days, um, even maybe a little bit more, especially if we don't need to wash and we don't have any bugs in the field. Um, and the roots last a long time. The mushrooms last a long time. Everything's harvested the day before. So it's very fresh and nothing should go bad. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And gotcha. in the winter time, we're focusing a lot more on root crops like carrots and beets. And so those things obviously will stay good for a really long time. We actually got mm -hmm. some feedback even families, they're like, we can't even go through all these veggies in two weeks if it's a lot of root crops. So we try to do our best to keep it a mixture of both yeah. roots and fresher greens. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The versatility. And then you have the mushrooms you're around as well. Yeah. 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 So everyone gets a pound of mushrooms in every box. Sometimes we'll throw in lion's mane from our partners, sometimes king oysters. Yeah. Um, so we kind of switch it around a little bit, but if not, it's always the standard oysters. Yeah. So with the uh, mushroom substrate, I see you using that around the farm. Talk us through a little bit of like the various ways you use that. Yeah. So <clears throat> after they've been producing for about three months, most of that cellulose is digested from the mycelium mm -hmm. and the straw becomes very spongy. And um, when we put it into our field, we break it up and we'll usually till it directly in. Okay. And we've had tremendous amount of success with seeing the results of our crop yields and the health of the plants because there's so much organic matter in there. And it's not like if you're tilling in wood chips where it's gonna suck nitrogen out because the wood chips are made of so much uh -huh. carbon. It's already been digested with all that lignin and straw in general isn't um, a ton of carbon anyways, but it it's just this nice spongy material that creates a ton of homes for microbes it also slowly breaks down and is digestible to all the microbes and bacteria and they're much easier than if it was just raw straw and um it it feeds the soil for about three to four months and our, uh, we, we do use a mixture of compost too but the straw is a great way for us to save a little bit of extra money um, and also utilize our mm -hmm. waste product for our fields and we also put that around our orchard so we do a ton of mulching with it um, mm -hmm. And then we'll also sell the bags to people on island for them to use for their gardens or for their little farms um, or for mulching their trees. And that helps us give a little bit more money back for the cost of, of what we're paying mm -hmm. for straw. What, uh, what crops are in your orchard? We have apples, figs, peaches, nectarines, um, persimmons. Persimmons are probably the best one because the birds tend to hammer the peaches and, and 
the nectarines and we could put out a bird netting but it's it's not like it's a production for selling it's mainly a production just for our own consumption and mm. it, it produces a good amount of fruit a year more than what we can eat ourselves but we don't really use it for any type of of wholesale or retail um the the how was it the fruit flies are really bad for nectarines and peaches too they sting them and then within a few days the the fruit kind of just melts and some years are better than others but the persimmons have been a big success and that was something that we were looking at planting a lot more of because they're mm -hmm. delicious and they store really well too Oh, nice. Now, yeah. uh, when you say they sting, is that the um, SWD or the spotted wing dystropolis that you're having the problem with? Or is it a different type of fruit fly? I, I don't know. Um, okay. I'm not sure. It, it, it just is all around the island. And they, it, they're specifically going after peaches, nectarines, those softer fruits with soft yeah. skin. So the, S, yeah, the SWD is typically a blueberry, blackberry, raspberry thing. So maybe okay. it's a, it, must, it probably is a different type. I mean, obviously you have very different pests out there just because of, yeah, you're how many thousand miles away from the <laughs> mainland. Um, but yeah, <clears throat> I know the SWD moved in only like 10, 10 or 12 years ago into the US mainly. Okay. Well, we have seen when we pick blackberries and if you put them in the fridge or the freezer, um, little teeny tiny maggots sometimes will crawl out. So I'm guessing uh -huh. that's a fruit fly that's yes. stinging that. Yes, yeah. that would be that. That's exactly what that is. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, and obviously we freeze them and that just kills them, but then, yeah. you know, yeah. Um, I don't yeah. mind eating them. <laughs> it's protein. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we get, uh, when strawberry season happens, uh, we get pretty, adventurous i'm going to say with you know what's what's out there in the field you know those slugs in that one i'll oh, just wipe them out <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. yeah. share share your marketing so obviously you're doing the csa we talked a little bit about that what other marketing channels do you have for your farm so we pretty early on we did start an instagram feed we're on mm -hmm. facebook but that's more of just reposting from instagram we don't have a ton of engagement on facebook so yeah, the Instagram page has definitely fueled um, marketing and sales for the CSA, so direct to consumer. And then we have gotten some accounts um, in terms of chefs or restaurants through the Instagram page, but early on, Michael made a pretty awesome effort to just go in with samples to restaurants and talk directly to chefs and make that mm -hmm. instant direct connection, which I think was really important. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, most of our clients from doing that have stayed customers um, over the years. So there's that. And then we did start an email list, um, kind of the same time that we started the, the Instagram page. And so we have, you know, we have a, a nice little email list mm -hmm. following. So that's been good in terms of the CSA engagement, but we, we also mainly do wholesale. Like mm -hmm. we do have our restaurant accounts, but when we ended up starting um there's only a few wholesalers on island and there's a couple on big island and on oahu and we found them through the farmers union so we ship out to those islands too each week different products um, but on island we grow some crops that other farmers don't grow so we have a good partner who's the largest farm at the farmers market who's probably our biggest client and we mm -hmm. grow 
like the cucumbers, the baby greens, the baby arugula, the mushrooms, they don't grow any of that potatoes and onions. Um, they focus on everything else. So he buys a lot from us and resells it at the farmer's market. And that's the same with our other distributors on Island who sell to a lot of restaurants, especially on the West side. Mm-hmm. And we don't deliver to the West side. So it's worked much easier for us to run a wholesale approach rather than a retail approach. And we stopped the farmer's market in the start of COVID. And it's been great since then. We get the, the margins that we want and we have more time for Lauren and I to be with one another because I'm yeah. sure whoever else is farmers, they understand how much time it takes up to do the retail game and to do the farmer's markets to pack and unpack and prep for it. And it was exhausting and we didn't want to do that anymore. So we figured out an approach just to mainly focus on the wholesale and move large quantities. And that way our chill doesn't get stacked up too with too much produce and bringing produce back that didn't sell. Um, So the CSA kind of fills the gaps of maybe sometimes if we have a little extra lettuce this week or a little bit Mm -hmm. extra root crops that are coming out, then they get to have mm-hmm. a little bit extra that. Yeah. Now you, one thing you said was you were on another property and you moved onto this property. When did you make that transition and kind of like, what was the the process? Cause I know you, you moved on Island in 2015. Yeah. Um, I'll keep this story short, <laughs> but 2019, we moved over to this property. Uh, okay. I had a business partner originally things didn't work out. Um, mm, okay. I was just, yeah. And uh, the next door neighbor asked us if we wanted to move over here. She's like, I always wanted a farmer on our land. And they've been amazing property owners. They've supported That's us awesome. in, in every step of the way. Yeah. yeah. And we're super blessed to have them over here. So we originally started with a cover crop across the entire property, let that go for a while. And then in March of 2019 is when we started. So we're really only three years into farming. Mm-hmm. Um, the first year really wasn't anything on the other property. That was just trialing. Like, how do we figure out how to make some money back? Because now we have to move off the property that um, we were supposed mm-hmm. to be investing yeah. into. That was an important year though. Cause that was before I was full-time um, kind of just watching all of this unfold and seeing <laughs> what was going to work and what wasn't. And yeah. I think it was a really important year to be like, okay, there's certain things like Michael figured out, um, you know, things like salad mix and arugula and those, you know, crops that you can harvest and make a quick profit were really important to, to have confidence that we could move over to the this mm-hmm. property that we're now on and actually do it. Yeah, Michael, actually, I had seen, so Curtis Stone and Jean-Martin Fortier, I'd seen a lot of their YouTube videos. So that helped me dial in. Okay. Well, these crops are a little bit more profitable. I see the efficiency mm-hmm. of how mm-hmm. you can do with these. And then um, you, I, I saw you doing the uh, rigging of the washer machine. That was the first time I ever um, <laughs> saw your face was on YouTube. And that was, yeah, that was really cool. And um, we didn't get that until we moved over to this new property. We didn't rig our own. We actually just bought a brand new stainless steel washing machine. We figured mm-hmm. that would be easier, but um, yeah, you are definitely an influence in how we had started our washing process. Yeah. So games. the washer you got, which brand did you end up getting? Did you go with, I think the speed queen or did you end up with like a, one of the other ones? I wouldn't know. I'd have to go look. Maybe it's, like <laughs> I, think it's I think it's one of the an LG. LGs yeah. or a GE or something. Yeah. It's just stainless steel on the inside. And if it's about 30 pounds max in there. Oh, wow. So you really load that baby up. Okay. Oh, yeah. oh yeah. 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 And that way we don't have to do more than like five loads during a day. Yep. 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 Yeah. We're doing, you know, a couple hundred pounds and we have two spinners going and typically this, 
standard is they should be able to do 125 pounds an hour of, of processing okay. greens, of, of washing greens. I know I saw this picture here in your Instagram, so I'm going to scroll through. I can see if I can find it and figure out what you got there. Or maybe it wasn't on your Instagram because now I'm pretty far back. Um, so, all right. So you do the wholesale, do the CSA. Um, so, I mean, yeah, because I mean, far, farmland over is very expensive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, super expensive. Yeah, so, having a lease and having the support from the property owners has been, I mean, it's been everything. We wouldn't be able to yeah. do what we're doing, honestly, without that. I mean, the Farm Service Agency was a huge help in mm-hmm. the beginning as well in terms of just getting um, certain infrastructure loans and different like machinery equipment loan. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's been amazing to be here on this property. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk a little bit more about the, the management side of the farm. So how many team members do you have? We have 10 of us total. We have five of us are full-time and okay. there's another five that are part-time. Uh, we have someone that runs our wash station and our nursery. We have one that runs our mushroom house. So he's our mushroom manager. We have another one that runs our field. And then we have another one that runs our greenhouses in the field. Um, mm-hmm. So do, doing all the lower and leaning and also can do electrical and, and other work like that. And then Lauren manages all bookkeeping, all accounting in the CSA program. Um, and then I kind of oversee everything outside of that. Um, all of our part-time work usually is one to three days a week. Mm-hmm. And um, so they come in different periods throughout the week. They help with harvesting, weeding, planting, prepping, um, really anything that's necessary. All right. So now you said you've got like, and so these people, like they're really, that's their sole thing they work, they focus on is let's say the person in the greenhouse, they're just doing that um, and, and managing that or the person in the pack and wash, they pretty much only focus on that. Yeah. So we just decided after kind of slowly onboarding a larger and larger team figuring out that we needed managers for specific positions. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, having the wash station manager, having the mushroom house manager, um, all of those folks that are full-time that are managers, they do kind of venture out into other things when needed, but mostly stay in their zone throughout the week. Yeah. And that takes stress off of me from needing to like overlook everything. Be like, Oh, this didn't get done this week because that's a hard thing to do. And I'm sure you can understand as, as a business owner of a farm, like a lot of times you want it done a specific way. And so um, letting go Mm -hmm. a little bit has been a challenge for me, but it's been good. And then also delegating and making sure that things get done properly. And I don't have as much stuff in my head because it becomes stressful when I'm, I'm, I'm holding too much in my head. Absolutely. Yeah. I totally get that. Yeah. We're, we're at the point where we're, we're, we're putting people more specialized, but then also trying to make sure we do cross train as well in case someone does not, isn't able to come to work for something or other. So um, that's something we're working on right now Um, with your part-time people. Do they have a specific focus or are they more like, Hey, the beats need weeded. So we're just going to jump out and everyone's going to work on that. We put out a list every week on exactly what needs to be done in each block. So they can look at the list and it's mm-hmm. kind of freedom of choice, whatever they want to do. If there's something that's prioritized, we'll definitely let them know. But um, they just know once they get to work, they can look at the list and then they can go out and get done whatever needs to be done. But we have a structure through the week. So Mondays are always harvesting for Tuesday mm-hmm. orders, Tuesdays and Wednesdays are always doing some form of, or form of bed prep 
always mm-hmm. a mushroom inoculation days and plantings. And then Thursdays are harvest days for Friday orders and Fridays are kind of catch up days. Um, so mm-hmm. it's, a, it, it's a pretty consistent flow and everybody kind of knows where they're at and what they need to do once they get to the farm. And it's also the culture, you know, everyone's friends. So there's mm-hmm. things that um, there's tasks where everyone works together on things and there's tasks where people work alone. Um, but it's nice when we do a lot more group tasks because it brings the community together and um, everyone has a much better time when they get to work with someone and tasks go faster. It can be daunting to weed a couple beds by yourself rather than just grabbing three people out there to do it. Yeah, absolutely. I totally 100% agree. So um, I am trying to identify that a wash machine and I quite can't. So <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to text you. <laughs> yeah, we'll yes, you I'm just, I'm just always interested in what folks are using. Um, it's from Home Depot. It was Home Depot. Yes, they have. Uh, I find, Do you have Lowe's over there too? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, we find Lowe's is slightly cheaper typically, but it, yeah. No, worse products too, we find. <laughs> worse customer That's- service. Yeah. that's interesting i think that's regional because typically when i'm in a home depot i can't find any help to get something oh, yeah it's yeah and uh lowe's does not have a well lowe's has a five percent credit card off but home okay. depot doesn't so that's why the other reason we go is and if we find the prices are very comparable plus you then have a five percent off yeah but anyway yeah that's just one of our quirks over here um, share a little bit about, um, so with the, the wholesale and the CSA, you don't necessarily need to do like a whole lot of marketing, it sounds like, other than like your email list and your Instagram. Yeah, not, not really. Um, I mean, we are constantly doing marketing in the sense of engagement on Instagram. And I think mm-hmm. over time we are getting more followers and more community member engagement, but it's also been word of mouth and folks mm-hmm. that signed up for the CSA in a particular neighborhood, let their friends know. And so all of a sudden there's five or six members in one neighborhood, which is really nice in terms of delivery route. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, we're not having to do a ton of hardcore marketing. Well, yeah, and on top of that, the wholesale is great because we have standing orders for most of our stuff. So we know when we're planting things exactly or at least around how much product and how much weight of this crop and this crop is needing to go out on a weekly basis so three mm-hmm. weeks from now our bed's going to produce 120 pounds of arugula and we know about 100 of that is going to be sold and maybe we can use the extra 20 pounds for our csa um, mm-hmm. and it's just has worked much smoother that way it does create maybe moments of stress that you have to keep seeding on a weekly basis to make sure you meet your wholesale accounts demands yeah but if hiccups come up everyone usually understands because farmers do have challenges with weather or with pest pressure or things like that so we do our best to be consistent and i would say overall salad greens and, and arugula we're consistent with like 11 months out of the year probably and there's those few weeks through the year that something happens and that's quite all right but um yeah it's just a much easier approach and so we have all those accounts set up we know exactly how much weight we can move on a weekly basis but that's taken years to figure Mm -hmm. out exactly what we can do and and how much we can sell we're probably a little bit over on cucumbers right now but we'll have to find a a bigger market for that yeah make some pickles people love (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> yeah. they are good yeah 
Hey, thriving farmers. Do you need a quick win on your farm? Have you struggled to find the right soil amendments that maximize your fruit or vegetable production? In December of 2020, I was introduced to AgriGrow and their prebiotic formulas. I was skeptical at first, but this past season, I boosted my strawberry yields by 18% with an AgriGrow product called Ultra. What does an 18% yield increase look like in dollars? My $6 in product investment returned me $868 worth of marketable strawberries on just three rows. This is the kind of ROI that we need as small scale producers. Ultra is an OMRI listed soil prebiotic technology that has been proven to increase yields and develop soils. To find out more or to order, go to smallfarm.solutions. AgriGrow is offering a 10% discount to all thriving farmer listeners. Simply use the coupon code THRIVE when you check out. Again, that is T-H-R-I-V-E for 10% off discount on your first order. So you for equipment, let's look at equipment right here. Um, you're using, looks like a BCS. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep, we're well, using a BCS. However, during the pandemic, it seems like almost the whole pandemic, our BCS was having some sort of issue and was in the shop. It was a so, flail mower, really. Yeah. Like the thing was broken for a year and a half and we took it in and they couldn't get it fixed. And then I just on a whim took it in again a year and a half later and somehow it just worked. Not sure how. And that was a blessing because it sucks to run a riding mower through your bed space and it messes <laughs> yes. up the riding mower and you can't really chop and drop right on top of a bed. You're spraying yeah. it outwards. Um, but the BCS, as much as it's a love-hate relationship, because we have a big hill, and mm-hmm. so it's really mm-hmm. hard to run that thing on a hill if you want to keep your beds relatively straight. Mm-hmm. It feels like it tears my body up, but it makes it so much easier to do the tight-knit spacing and keep your bed space mm-hmm. prepped really well and also um, not need to run a tractor and a disc through because we did that for a little bit when the BCS was broken, but it doesn't prep beds properly. No. Um, and the BCS is just an extremely efficient tool that can, yeah. like, when we're taking one bed out in between two beds, I don't need to wait until those two beds are finished. I can just run the yeah. BCS through. What spacing are you at? Or like what bed width? Are you like on a four foot system or? Yeah, I usually do about a one and a half pass with the 30 inch tiller. So it's, okay. it's, it's closer to like three and a half, a little over three and a half feet. And I just like a little bit bigger space on our yeah. bed. I don't like how small a 30 inch bed looks. Um, and at our walking space is around maybe 10 inches or a foot. Yeah. Cause the wider the bed, the more efficient you are per acre. Exactly. And a exactly. lot of people don't think, realize that when you're looking at a 30 inch bed, I mean, once you move to like a 42 or 48 or even a 60 inch, uh, Pete Johnson up in Vermont, he's on a, I think it's a 96 inch bed. Well, 96 inch centers. So that means it's eight feet. So he's running like a six and a half foot bed top, which is oh, blows wow. my, yeah, it blows my mind, but he makes it work and he's doing 200 acres of vegetables now. So the only thing I found with, if I get too wide on beds, sometimes there's not enough airflow in the middle mm, of the bed. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. If we do dense planting, of course yeah. we could probably lessen how, how densely we're planting. Yeah. But that's why I like about the 42 to 46 inch bed. Yeah. Now with the paper pot, you're putting in, let's say four to five rows of lettuce. And how are you marking that? Are you running like a, a gritter down or are you just kind of eyeballing it? We eyeball, eyeball. everything. <laughs> <laughs> we don't use any gritters. Um, 
we're efficient, but we don't standardize beds because I know mm-hmm. a lot of guys do the stringing up and make sure everything's super neat. And because of the the contour of what yes. or how our land looks, we, we can't really do that stringing. So I do my best to prep beds accordingly. And um, when we do the paper pot, we do have a couple field blocks that are, I think, around 142 feet, which is right mm-hmm. underneath yep. what the six inch paper pots do at 139. Mm-hmm. And those work great. So we do try to maybe keep our paper pot plantings on certain blocks if, if we can. Yeah. But other than that, we've figured out if we have a 200 foot bed, maybe we just do six paper pots for that bed. That'll yeah. be ready to come out in four weeks and be ready to be transplanted. So yeah, it works out. Yeah. Gotcha. No, that looks good. We're not science. science I mean, we, I guess we are scientists, but we're not perfectionists in that way. As long as it's efficient, then that works for us. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the stuff looks clean. And so then I'm assuming you're using like a wheel hoe just to go around, let's say like the lettuces and such. Uh, the wire weeders from Neversink okay. are great for that. Um, we use the double wheel hoe for the walkways or hula hoes. Mm-hmm. Um, what else? Well, we did get the, this is a little different topic, but we did get the um, the flame weeder. Oh, the year. farmer's friend. Yeah. yeah. That helps during the wet season when we prep ahead of time and it rains a lot and there's a ton of weeds that come up. So we can't really grow baby arugula or the wild rocket arugula if we don't flame weed well during the wet season or else it's just a hassle to have to hand weed that whole thing. So how are you doing deep tillage? Are you doing any broad forking? Uh, No, our soil's just been fluffed up. We really only use the rotary plow and the tiller. And then in the summertime when we don't need to till much because it gets much drier, then we'll just use the power harrow. Okay. Um, We'll broad fork if we feel like we need to, but we, you know, Pat, I mean, Michael, we had a, a big issue with cutworm. I don't know if that's an issue with where you guys are at. And if we didn't till the beds, uh, we lost our entire tomato crop in our greenhouse because oh. we built our greenhouses over, over these beds that we hadn't been tilling. And we planted out our tomatoes and in a couple nights, every single oh my tomato demolished. was demolished. Yeah. yeah. So, so- that's Tillage really has, has helped. Yeah. It has helped kill the cutworms and make sure that the beds prep nice. It's fluffed up. Um, mm-hmm. We put a ton of moisture on and the microbes and the biology seems to come back to life mm-hmm. really, really, really fast. So that's fascinating that you say that because cutworms is something, I mean, maybe over my 17 years of farming, I've seen them six times. Oh, wow. And everyone's just like, oh my gosh, I got cutworms. I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. Cause we just don't have that problem. We'll lose a few yeah. here and there, but we've always been tilling. We've always done a lot of tillage and obviously, yes, we do rotations. So we do, you know, mm-hmm. lots of mulches, but we always once a year, or at least are doing a, a pretty decent tillage through there. And so I'm wondering if that is a big aspect of that. And it sounds like that's kind of your your experience there is that that tillage is really helping get rid of those cutworms because it can be devastating, as you say right there. I mean, um, losing a tomato crop is, is, is a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It sucks. It was a bummer. <laughs> you put a lot of time yeah. in for the genetics yeah. and babying them up to the yeah. beginning and then they just eat the stem oh overnight gosh. and the whole plant falls apart. Yeah. We were out there with a Swiss chard crop too, that got it was starting to get demolished. And then we went out for we, like, I don't know how many nights in a row. One bed, we must have taken out 300 cutworms. And like gnarly. some of them are those massive grubs. They are Huge. gross. Oh they, my gosh. Wish them, they 
popping your <laughs> your fingers. I mean, it's it's gnarly. Um, That's good. He's like chickens. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. The Swiss chard came back yeah. immediately. It was great. Um, so yeah, the, the tillage has really helped substantially for that. But we also found less fungal issues. Um, we tried no-till for about a year. Mm-hmm. And we buy a pretty alive fertilizer that comes from Oahu. It's like a fish bone meat meal that's been recycled. Oh. Yep, yep. So when we was put, we're, we're putting that over our beds and we weren't doing tillage, we were just tilting and broad forking. Yeah. Uh, we would have flies come lay their eggs in the fertilizer maggots would form and all of our seed germination was at like a five to 10% ratio. So we couldn't do baby greens anymore. Um, it was just maggots eating all of the seeds and all those baby germinated and it was nasty and it was gross. And maybe we could have switched fertilizers in one Mm. way, but we also just saw heavier yields from fluffing up the soil more. Um, and a lot less disease from being mm-hmm. able to make sure that that, that soil wasn't hard and, and compact. And yeah. it's not like we're not putting a ton of compost and straw back in, but, um, it just has really worked better for us. Maybe if we had sandier soils, we wouldn't need to do as much tillage, but our heavy clay really seems to yeah. like to have some more oxygen. Well, we have a, we have a silt loam. It's, it's pretty light and, it's really interesting. This year we had a late bed of chard in the greenhouse and we wanted to keep it because it looked beautiful. So we just ripped out the center row and we threw in the regular fertilizer, did a little bit of, you know, working the soil up with a, with a, a fork and then planted tomatoes in there. And those tomatoes are still three to five weeks behind the tomatoes that got the same treatment that went in three beds over and were tilled. I mean, the yeah. plants are literally like this compared to, you know, eight feet, well, seven feet tall now. And the wow. yield is just double. So wow. I, you know, maybe there are these aspects if, if you spend three, four, five years getting it super alive and it just kind of works. Like my friend, Ray Tyler is doing a lot more no-till and he's having really good success with it. Um, awesome. But he also does a ton of tarping. So his system is, you know, bed tarp for two weeks or three weeks to kill and to just degrade all the, the crop residue and then come back with a very clean bed. Um, so he's doing a, like a significant break. So yeah. I don't know. I mean, his stuff looks great. Um, the yields yeah. he's getting is, is phenomenal. I know he does do some tillage still for very specific crops. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, again, it's, it's one of those things that there's, there's awesome that there's so many different types of farming and different things work for different people. Yeah. Yeah. And definitely. I do wonder too, with our climate, if, for whatever reason, this, you know, the no-till just doesn't, it's not quite the right fit for our climate. Yeah. Know. We've had friends who are farmers too, who mm-hmm. it hasn't worked for because the the soil is rock hard when you're not tilling. Um, mm-hmm. We do get a lot more rain here and rain tends to create compaction when we get 10 inches in a week or something like that. So we just Sheesh. found more, more oxygen in the soil creates better. And over tillage, of course, is bad, especially in the summer for us, because then the microbes have a hard time. The yeah. soil's dry. Um, so it's more of an intuitive process seeing what needs to be done. Mm-hmm. What are you using for microbes? Are you doing anything specific like any prebiotics or like, uh, or just kind of what's, what's happening is what happens? Yeah. What's happening is what happens. I mean, our compost, our spent mushroom substrate, there's a lot Mm -hmm. of microbes already in that spent mushroom substrate, but our fertilizer is a pretty alive product too. Um, I mean, you throw it down and you put it into the soil and you give it some water and you'll see fungal growth all over that in a couple of days. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think it's 
partially climate-based. It's so warm here and there's so much activity in the air of microbes that it seems like there's always some life around. And when we throw water onto the soil, um, usually we water really heavily after we've prepped beds just to start bringing life immediately to the soil. Mm -hmm. You can see it already comes back. And every time we till, we never see um, a loss of worms. There's constantly worms. Yeah. Like there'll be some yeah. worms that die there, but after every crop, there's always worms. There's always tons of that fungi that's attached yeah. and, um, little tiny, tiny bugs that are breaking down everything, roly polies, you know, things like that. Yeah. So what's your organic matter levels typically? What are you seeing? We got our, uh, test back last year. I think it was August when we did it with Joey. Um, it was 5.9%. So I thought, that. yeah, I thought it was pretty good okay, and pretty um, darn good. Yeah. Was satisfied with it. So we yeah. just keep putting in as, as much as we can with that spent substrate and compost. Yeah. Yeah. And so with that spent substrate, I mean, like it's 500 pounds of mushrooms a week. What do you, is it a ton of substrate that you're putting into the farm a week or more? Um, let's see. It is each pallet's 900 pounds. We do a pallet and a half a week. So 13, 14. 13 or 1400 pounds okay. a week of, of okay. dry weight, but that, but yep. the wet weight of straw is like 3000 oh. plus pounds. Yeah. 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 So we don't constantly put it into the field. It just depends on how much bed space we have available, but usually yeah. each bed is getting two applications minimum per year of the straw itself on top of compost and mm-hmm. uh, e- each bed, let's say it's 150 feet. We're looking at like eight, eight of those bags twice a yeah. year, at least. Um, yeah. So at least 160 pounds of dry straw. That's, that's, um, that's awesome. Broken yeah. down. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that, that sounds like a really good system and it'd be really exciting to see if you can make that, you know, whole circle with the rice. That'd be very yeah. cool. Yeah. yeah. I'd be interested to maybe share, cause I'm, I'm pretty sure your audience is like either current farmers or people that want to get into farming. Mm-hmm. And so just kind of being a couple of years into it, any kind of words of encouragement? Cause I think the, the first couple of years were definitely really challenging for us. And <laughs> yeah. we got, we got married also in 2019. So, Oh yeah. Start a farm and get married. You know, that's yeah. good. Good idea. <laughs> <laughs> all the things at once. So that was pretty intense. And I think just to share that, you know, it does get easier. Um, mm. We were talking about it last night and Michael was also saying, you know, if we could do it over again, now that we've learned so much, um, in terms of starting, if you have a piece of land that you have access to and you're kind of starting from square one to maybe keep your current job for a bit while you're building infrastructure and Mm. then sort of making that transition a little bit more slowly. Whereas we kind of went all in. I mean, I still had some part-time work doing online marketing. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was working from home and doing that to have a little bit more income, but it was definitely intense to be sort of all in with all of the infrastructure projects while mm-hmm. also trying to do crop yields and all of that. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it, you know, it takes a toll on your relationship with not only your wife or partner, but friends yeah. as well, because you're spending every moment out mm-hmm. on the farm. And we were pushing so hard to try to sell enough crops through the week to pay people while on the weekends building all of our infrastructure for our greenhouses, Mm -hmm. our electric, our concrete, whatever it it was. And it just becomes super exhausting. And um, if I had to do it over, I probably would love to be able to 
put the infrastructure up first, get everything established nice and neat, and then go for it. And that way there's a little bit less stress on the finances. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it worked for us. We made it through and it does get a lot easier. Um, we're at a point where we can keep our workload down to about 40 hours a week now. Um, mm, that's awesome for, for yeah. us ourselves. Yeah. And, and we can take the weekends off for the most part. Um, sometimes three day weekends too, pretty consistently. And it feels really good because, you know, we were working 70 to 90 hours a week for the mm-hmm. first couple of years and oh, yeah. um, starting to get burnt out and um, it's not very fun when, yeah. when you don't have energy to give to one another when you come back home. Yeah. You're just exhausted. You want to order takeout and just chill. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. exactly. Well, I mean, think of it, add three kids to the mix. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That is terrifying. Oh, <laughs> um, now the other thing it sounds like is you don't have, like you, it sounds like you have irrigation, but it's like a lot of your water just comes from the sky. Yep. Yes. And no, I mean, the summertime is definitely drier. We're having okay. a really funny June actually, as I look May outside, and June. yeah, we have some rain, misty rain coming down right now. But yeah, typically in the summertime, we have to be pretty on it in terms of daily irrigation. Um, we mainly do overhead and then there are a couple field blocks. Well, now we're switching to, to drip. Yeah. Four and five drip. and one are all on drip. So all the greenhouses are on drip mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and we've switched four and five to drip. And we've seen kind of better results with everything on drip. Uh, seems like the water stays in the ground longer. So we don't mm-hmm. need to water as much on top of the fact that the plants aren't getting overhead so that there's really no more disease issues. Yeah. Um, and it's been great. We will still have overhead set up on everything because we do so much baby green. So we need good mm-hmm. germination mm-hmm. on carrots yeah. and things like that. But um, the drip has been a, a, an awesome way for us to grow crops. And I hated it in the past. Um, maybe I just had a bad experience with it because of doing so much baby greens. But now the fact that we can throw drip out for all of our longer term crops, it makes things much yeah. healthier and much easier and a lot less of a headache to water during the summertime. No, I think we all hate drip. <laughs> just like we all hate row covers and we all hate insect netting. <laughs> I mean, it's one of those things, which it can change your farm completely. Like we can't grow hackerite turnips or arugula with, and we actually have horseradish right now, which is getting destroyed by um, flea beetles. Um, I didn't realize that. And I was just, I was out there looking at the horseradish and I was like, oh, I know these bugs. Um, so thankfully that's a crop that we can hit with surround and we don't care if, you know, cause you can surround that the entire year and because you don't care about the leaves on horseradish, gotcha. but it's anyway. Yeah. Um, drip is a pain, especially for cultivating. I mean, if you have, if you have like a two or three person cultivating team, it's one thing because you can grab one person either end, you pick the drip up, you move it over, you quickly cultivate, you move it back. Yeah. But by a lone person out cultivating, it's just a disaster. Yeah. The drip has helped though also for us because we have extremely low volume of water. We have good Interesting. pressure, yeah, yeah. but we can run one sprinkler line at a time. Um, so is that 10 farm. gallons a minute or five gallons a minute? NRCS came and checked. I'm actually not sure exactly yeah. what it is, but we even have the wobbler heads and it's, it's not oh, a gosh. lot of volume that comes out and we can still hardly run one line per block. Yeah. So we have, you can say like maybe 18 lines on the whole farm. So we're watering from like 6am to 8pm yeah. on really hot summer dry days barely getting the whole farm watered and then have to do it again. So the drips help not need to do too much of that. Yeah. We're about to invest probably like $15,000 into a new well. 
Okay. So yeah, it's where we are, we're 40 or 20 feet to water. So that means it's a 50 foot well. Um, but the cost is in the pumps and the variable speed drives and all of that. Mm. So that's yeah. where we're, we're putting the money in. But, um, and I'm assuming when, so is that something where you could get more water if you put a better well in, or it's just because of the yield of where you are because of the Island? We run off of County water currently and oh. it gets, it gets filtered, but, um, we just have a certain size meter. And the only thing I think that we can do that will probably get done sometime soon is put in a catchment tank. And so we can fill that ah, up, yep. pump the water downhill, and that'll give us a much better volume. Or yeah, the so pond idea. So we're catching mm -hmm, all the water mm -hmm. that we yeah. can and basically recycling that back into the fields. And that might work really well for you because you do have so much rain at off times of the season, but exactly. ponds are a lot of investment too. With yep. The <laughs> But it gives us it gives us the ability to add fish in, so a little yep. less purchasing of nutrients by being yep. able to run the water from the pond into our soil. Yeah, um, and, yeah, and then frogs too are super important for the ecosystem. Yep. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely a project that we're not quite ready to invest in. Kind of need to. Yeah. Build up the cash flow a little bit more. Yeah, and make sure yep. that we don't put all this yeah. money into a property that we don't own too. Well, I mean, that's really important. And I think, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing. You do have really good landlords and over our upstate New York trip, uh, well, within the 12 years we were up there, we ended up, we, have, we had good working relationships, but it was, there were some hairy moments. Um, but yeah, if you don't have good relationships, that's a ton of money that just disappears. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, our property now we own outright. And so, you know, from the start, we're dumping, you know, tens of thousands of dollars into perennial cropping. And, you know, we're willing to spend this money on this well, because mm -hmm. it's just now an asset, you know, in 20 years, if we decide to sell the property, but yeah. um, unless you have that security, it makes it really, really hard. So that's where, you know, again, the catchment tank, because you could probably, you know, build that above ground and take that with you. You have to, or at least cash out part of it makes mm -hmm. a heck of a lot more sense. Yeah. So are ponds pretty common in your neck of the woods or? Yeah, because we have a lot of water. We have probably, I think 40, I think it's like 45 inches a year. We typically get, um, and it depends on the soil type. Like if you go a little bit east of us, there's a lot of ponds because it's more clayish over there. Um, uh, where we are right here, there's not a ton. We're on sand and gravel. So typically if the water goes in it disappears, there's a lot of open pit mines here. So literally you'll see a massive area and then like, you'll be like 15, 20 feet down, but then there's literally a lake. And actually like, if you stand where our farm is and look that way, there's two open mines right there. One is actually now a fishing lake and the other one's actually an open pit mine for sand and gravel. Um, wow. So yeah, it's the water, we're sitting on one of the top five aquifers in the nation. So that's why oh, wow. for us to just drop in, you know, a 50 foot well, which at the current rate of $53 a foot, um, and then the screen is $500 a foot. So you're going to spend, and we need 10 feet of screen. So um, you're sinking some serious money into screen, but that's because we want to be able to pull hundred gallons a minute. Right. I see. So um, yeah, it's, I mean, again, and, and one of those things right now we're on about 20 gallons a minute and it works, um, but more is always better because we get some hot, dry winds. And when those start really coming across the fields, that just sucks the moisture right out of everything. Yeah, yeah, totally. So, um, but I think back to what you said there is building that infrastructure before you start, man, I think that's a key point. Um, it's interesting because, a uh, while ago, a friend of mine was on a podcast and, and he was saying that, and, and I was talking to somebody else and I was like, well, you know, again, why would you put all this money into something if you didn't know 
how it should be constructed. I mean, you're going to change things as you go. Like, again, we spent a lot of money when we first got started with a pretty big mushroom operation. For us, mushrooms weren't a huge seller with our very specific area. It would have gotten better, I think, if we were at farmer's markets, um, but it wasn't huge for us. And so I think was like, why would you do that? But now trying to build infrastructure while we're trying to actively run a, a farm, as you said, your weekends, your nights, and then all the money that just pull, sucks can be yeah. pretty incredible. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's definitely hard yeah, to, to it do was, it all together. It was a big undertaking, but like I said, it does get easier. And also all the work that you do up front um, in order to put systems in place, team mm-hmm. protocols, operations, all that stuff does also pay off. Um, whereas like yeah. in the moment, it feels like, oh, this is taking forever and don't feel like yeah. you're maybe getting a lot of traction, but eventually I feel like it does yeah. get traction. Yeah. It does. And at that moment when the team just calls you and say, Hey, the CSA is ready for delivery. You can just come do it whenever. Wow. I didn't even touch anything this morning. And I didn't, I, yeah, I, I, yeah it's all been done. So the, those are the, the, the breathing, like, you know, that's moving forward. Um, yeah. one, exactly. of, one thing we did that actually what one of my coaches mentioned was uh, building an intranet for our farm. So we actually have basically it's a private website for our team that has now that so much is online um, that everything lives on there. And that's been incredible. Oh, um, very cool. What like do you for use? Work schedules and things like that. Uh, we get everything from work schedules to customer service email to all the labels. We print off a lot of labels that going on wholesale, going retail, um, clocking in and out for the team is on there. Um, my calendar. Cause again, I have multiple jobs. So where's Michael at this time? They can just check the calendar farm map is on there. Uh, digital map. We have printed off ones, but it's also digital. Um, yeah, we just use Google sites cause it's free. It comes with your Google. Like if you have Google email you can just get Google sites for free and it doesn't have to look pretty. Most of it's just a, a lines of different links, like link to this, link to this, link to this. So nice. Yeah. Yeah. It, uh, How big is your farm? How many acres? We have eight acres here. Um, okay. well, it's 8.18 something or other. Um, yeah. It's, all, all of it's in production too? Not every square foot, but we're getting there. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're doing a lot of perennials. So we're moving more into like the perennial blueberries, raspberries, um, elderberries, um, oh, cool. a, lot of, a lot of willows. Again, our, we're trying to create a little Eden here. It's pretty much what we're focused on. And yeah. Uh, horseradish, um, that sort of stuff. So yeah, again, the more perennials, the better, and it's just less, uh, re- less annual crops. Um, cause we have a certain space we know we have to, we can grow on. And so just let's see how we can utilize the entire area and see how much we can, you know, get off this, this space. Yeah. Right so. on. Very cool. Uh, one more thing I wanted to share too about beginning farmers is um, start starting small because we focus so much mm. on efficiency and mm-hmm. we have other people who are who farm on the island that we've been to. Um, their farms are so big and there's so many weeds that you begin to lose efficiency. You begin to allow weed seeds to continue to cultivate and grow and grow. So mm-hmm. your fields never get better. Mm-hmm. And um, if you can start small and you're super efficient in a quarter acre and then you can expand to a half acre and keep everything under control. It's much easier than planting things out and not being able to take care of it and losing Mm -hmm. crops to weeds or to whatever comes your way because things get too dense and Mm -hmm. you just begin forgetting about things. So we really just opened up one more field this year because we have enough help now. 
um, and we're in like full production that we've, we can finally take care of everything now. Um, before we had blackberries in and we actually took out most of those blackberries because mm -hmm. we weren't giving it any attention. Um, we didn't really have the time, nor did it really produce a lot of uh, revenue back for us. Mm -hmm. The birds ate a lot of the blackberries too. So yeah. Um, yeah. No, so I, starting I, small and growing, I think is a big point of encouragement. Well, because I think a lot of people get this idea that they need to have a farm and they see someone else's farm. They say, well, my need farm needs to look exactly like that. Yeah. And then they don't have the experience to run that type of farm. Um, and so they get easily overwhelmed and the inefficiencies build up and then they see themselves not making any money and then they ditch. Whereas yeah. they had started at that quarter acre, just like you said, slowly, slowly scaled up. Um, this isn't a race folks. This is a marathon to feed our communities. <laughs> yeah. And, um, I think, you know, if you kind of go with that, um, mentality, then it's a much, yeah, it's going to make it, you're going to make it work. Yeah. So yeah, that's, Definitely. that's great advice. Cool. Well, thank you too so much for your time today in the podcast. Really appreciate it. Share some great, um, words of wisdom and it's really cool to hear how you're farming on a very different growing environment than we have here. Um, and, uh, yeah, thanks so much for your time again. Thanks awesome. for having us. We yeah. appreciate it. Thanks, Michael, for the talk. Absolutely. Aloha. This episode is sponsored by Rimmel Greenhouse Systems, makers of quality greenhouse structures. Whether you're just getting started or buying your 10th tunnel, Rimmel has a structure to fit your needs. I've purchased and grown in Rimmel houses and would recommend them to everyone. So there you have it. Another episode in the books. So I'd love if you would hop on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. Those mean everything to us. We love to hear what you're thinking. If you have a podcast guest that you can recommend, please pop on over to the Thriving Farmer podcast website and leave us a review. That's thrivingfarmerpodcast.com.